Radio. Conversations with Daniel Noor. Tackling the tough questions on cradio.org.au. Conversations with Daniel Noor is an edgy, topical podcast featuring an expert on a hot topic in society with myself. I'm the Daniel Noor element. Every couple of weeks, you can tune in and get up to speed. Don't fake it. Know what Catholicism says about the stuff that matters. And this is with Father Dominic Popplewell, who is particularly familiar with the era, and today he speaks to me about corruption, the sale of indulgences, and the piety of medieval Catholics. The monk from the Da Vinci Code, self-flagellation, piety, excess, a morbid obsession with penance, this is our understanding of medieval Catholicism, certainly that presented by the media and so many films. Today, we're going to address some of those assumptions, perhaps misconceptions, and, and just have a chat. Father, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. So, let's get started on penance. Uh, penance has always been associated with kind of a self-hatred and some kind of a punishment and a mentality of punishment, a hatred of the flesh, for example. How fair is that? That's completely wrong. <laughs> penance is, in fact, a conversion. And the, the Greek word uh, by which penance is translated in some versions of Scripture means uh, a change of the mind and the heart. That's what penance is about. Mm. It's not about hatred. It's about a change, a change away from sin towards God. Mm. And yet so many saints seem to have uh, practiced what would today be seen, some, you know, perhaps as some kind of a masochism. Um, we know, you know, St. Teresa of Avila, for example, was one who um, self-flagellated. Is that... Now, uh, if you say, as you do, that penance is about a conversion of the heart then just why should there be such uh, repression of the body? The heart and the mind are not in a vacuum. The, the human being is a composite, both a mind and a body. And so there is uh, a connection between the two. And what we do with our body has some bearing on what we do with our mind. And so there is a physical element to penance. It is part of the conversion. It is not, however, about hatred. Mm. The practice of um, kind of abstinence, for example, people going without food. And this is, uh, we know, a very old tradition associated even with Eastern Orthodoxy, which is a kind of... um, you know, food and or rather water and maybe bread, or indeed just water in the Eucharist, which is what some very great saints have practiced. Um, could you give me some examples of saints, first of all, who have undergone that kind of abstinence, and then maybe explain the usefulness of that of that particular practice? There are many, many saints who have practiced um, mortifications, mm. as you might call them, uh, who have. Um, being notable ascetics is mm. another way of putting it. Um, these practices um, are ways in which we open our minds and hearts to God. They help us to uh, be receptive to the grace of God. Mm-hmm. 
And so if you look, for example, at the preface for the Lenten season, it tells us that God raises up the mind through these practices. There's mm. one example of what this opening to grace achieves in the person that undertakes it with the right spirit. Mm, mm. The practice of indulgences is one of the most frequently criticised and controversial of the Church's teachings. It was the sale of indulgences against which Martin Luther protested in his 95 Theses on the Church door. And uh, he was a German monk who led a movement of revolt with a group of followers who were later known as Lutherans. Uh, and the revolutionary concept that he you know, proposed, and this is by a, uh, a website called enotes.com, and this is their assessment. It's used, I think, in some kind of homework help capacity. So it's a pretty standard understanding of things as far as uh, you know, Western observers would go. It's that the role of the church needed to be curtailed and to become less as an exclusive intermediary and more, you know, uh, and, and just another utility of God. So Luther's ideas that the church should not have some kind of monopoly on people's souls spread widely with the help of the printing press. This is the understanding of things. Father, I'll have you address that assumption if you'd like, but also what, what is an indulgence? Let's start there. Hmm. An indulgence is a remission of temporal punishment. So that is to say the punishment which remains uh, after a sin is forgiven. There is a, a common misunderstanding, perhaps common even among Catholics, that an indulgence is a forgiveness of sin. It is not. An indulgence can only come into operation with regard to sins already forgiven and the temporal punishment remaining for that sin. Mm. So is there a biblical precedent for that practice? Is there some kind of genesis or connection to uh, the words of the Lord in, in the New Testament, for example, or is it a totally newfangled concept? Did, did the Catholic Church invent indulgences? Indulgences um, originate in the Church's practice in the very early Church. They originate with the, the martyrs who interceded for those who had conformed to the Roman Empire's insistence that the Christian scriptures be burnt, for example, or that incense be offered to the pagan gods. Mm. Christians who had uh, conformed to these practices would go to the martyrs who were in prison and they would ask them to uh, intercede for them so that they could be readmitted to the communion of the church, mm. having betrayed that communion. Mm. So that's where we, we see the, the origin of, the, of indulgences. And yet many Protestants criticise... So, so there, you know, there is some kind of uh, early church practice, certainly associated with martyrdom, 
a desire for people to be in communion with the church and not so much, you know, that the Catholic bishops were so greedy that they should desire uh, more revenue. And I think it's Pope Leo X who um, in the popular mind is associated with the sale of indulgences as a means of, you know, revenue making, money making, uh, because he so depleted the banks of the church in his renewal of Rome and his huge architectural projects, etc. And yet you say actually it's to do with early church martyrs who shed their blood. Is that right? Or those who had fallen out of communion a very, very long time ago? That's, that's one um, aspect of indulgences, the historical beginning of the practice in the church. Um, by the time we're talking about Pope Leo X, and the sale of indulgences were already in the early 16th century. So we've gone from antiquity into the late Middle Ages, mm. or the beginning of the modern period. And uh, to understand what happened in between, we have to understand the decadence at the end of the Middle Ages. So the period of the late Middle Ages, which was a period of decline and led to certain abuses, including the sale of indulgences. Yeah. Many Protestants criticise that practice above all else, Father. It's really seen as a kind of um, unforgivable, almost... Well, in, in, the adjective is medieval, which is appropriate here, but a medieval practice of the church, which is to say archaic and totally unnecessary for any kind of real Christian virtue. How would you reassure a Protestant about the relevance of indulgences, about the validity of indulgences, or indeed in general? When we talk about indulgences, as I've said already, we're talking about the remission of temporal punishment, and this is intimately connected with the Catholic teaching on purgatory. From a Protestant point of view, Indulgences don't make sense because, from a Protestant point of view, there is no such thing as purgatory. Mm. And so, to understand indulgences, you have to understand purgatory. Mm. Mm. And also, I think you have to have some belief in the Church's authority to forgive and to remit sins. Certainly, certainly. Well, has the Church changed since then, since that period, talking about the medieval church, and would you agree, first of all, was there a misuse of this sacrament? Can we call it a sacrament? The, the, um, the indulgence is a sacramental. Mm. There was certainly an abuse. There were, there were abuses in the use of indulgences. The office of pardoner or questor which was abolished in the 16th century, was open to great abuse, the charging of money for spiritual benefit. Mm. This is simony. Um, we see in the Acts of the Apostles already, Simon Magus attempts to purchase the Holy Spirit from mm. the Apostles, and so he's given his name to the uh, trafficking in spiritual goods. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, it's always the case that someone who like produces or kind of parades a great sin becomes synonymous with that. Mm. So 
um, has the church changed since then? It depends what you mean by the church, I suppose. The church is at the one time holy and sinful. Sinful in its members, holy in its head, holy in those who are living a full Christian life. Mm. So in one sense, we still have sinful people in the church. We have those until the end of time. It's like the parable of the, the wheat and the darnel in the, in the field. So in a certain sense, it's... it's so that would be like the wheat and the, and the chaff, or like the, the fake wheat. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So the validity of the idea that the church can uh, issue a remission of the temporal punishment due to sin, does that still happen? Yes. And is it still called an indulgence? It's still called an indulgence. So could I go to church today and receive an indulgence? Yes. And I'm sure many people still feel uncomfortable with that. So what is, if you could just restate for me, for my ignorant, stubborn mind here, what is the difference between that and medieval practice of indulgences? The practice is essentially the same. What no longer exists in any way is the uh, abuse of indulgences by selling them Mm. in the way that happened in the late medieval period. Yeah, so literally for the the payment of money. But isn't it true that if I wanted to um, receive that kind of temporal exemption, I could pay? Is that not one of the means of penance? I mean, some people are given like alms giving, for example, you know, instead of saying three Hail Marys, I'd like you to go and donate to a charity, the priest in the confessional might say. So then, does that still happen? This, this is in fact the gateway through which the abuse entered into the church, that giving alms is a work of mercy mm. and therefore has value as a penitential practice to make satisfaction for sin mm. And so that, that is what led to the abusive practice. So almsgiving certainly still exists, mm. but what does not exist is if you pay a set amount of money, then that will be equivalent to this number of days of public penance. Yeah, yeah, okay. And that quantification of this many years out of purgatory for this many dollars no longer no longer happens certainly there there are no um, financial amounts associated with any grants of indulgences nowadays and indeed the equivalence between a certain amount of time of public penance and the indulgence is is also abolished nowadays the church only distinguishes between a partial indulgence and a plenary or full indulgence. Mm. Yes. I, I guess, Father, the, the, the superstitious nature, or what would seem to be superstitious about Catholic belief, really irritates lots of people. I can't say that indulgences alone represent that, but they certainly, they certainly are a big part. 
when people think of Catholicism, they still associate it with that period, the, the vestiges of the, the Middle Ages, that era. And as we go into the modern world, I sometimes do feel that Catholics are hard-pressed to prove or maybe bend over backwards in their attempt to prove that, you know, they're no longer like that. The church has changed. You know, we, we no longer um, flagellate. The Da Vinci Code was totally off. Or all of this. So I, I guess I'm looking to ask, what is the difference between tradition and um, what is traditional and what is, shall we say, archaic or irrelevant? Mm. How, is there some kind of measuring stick for the church to decide when its beliefs no longer apply or what parts of them shouldn't be emphasised anymore? I would say that Catholics in general are in an environment in our society that has a certain mythology mm. about history. It is that mythology that makes the word medieval a term of abuse. Rather than buy into that mythology, I think it's better for Catholics to have a Catholic understanding of history, to realise that the, the common account of history is an anti-Catholic one. Mm. To say that something is medieval, for me, is a compliment Whereas for many people, it is detrimental. Hmm. I would love to say that I'm stuck in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages, especially the, the period called the, the High Middle Ages from, let's say, the 11th to the 13th century, were uh, a time of great flourishing for um, culture, for thought, for the arts, it's a, it was a wonderful time. If Catholics could appreciate the synthesis of faith and life that existed, especially in the High Middle Ages, then I think they would be able to counter some of those dismissive comments about being medieval and so forth. Yes, this makes me ask then, was the Protestant Reformation necessary? What was necessary was reform. And before the Protestant revolt or Protestant reformation... Led by Martin Luther, as we discussed. Which begins in, let us say, 1517. Before that, the church had undertaken reform. And after that, the church continued reform. We might think in particular of the, the Great Council of Trent in the, the early 16th century. And so reform was certainly necessary, but the rebellion which uh, resulted in Lutheranism and the other Protestant groups was not necessary. Mm. Mm. And what would you... Now, you are a Catholic priest. Uh, we must keep this in mind. This is uh, not an indictment, but it does make sense. So one would perhaps even hope that a Catholic priest would defend the Catholic Church in all of its eras, although there are 
some who do not. But what is it, Father Popperwell, that you would like to have seen preserved into the modern era that was lost in Catholic culture? That's a very good question. I think what we see in the wake of the Protestant revolt and with the counter-reformation or the Catholic reform is, at least in some areas, a certain overcompensation mm. for the um, abuses and the criticisms of the Protestant uh, leaders. And so we lost uh, a certain fullness by, by that overcompensation, that, that um, almost a puritanical spirit that came in uh, in some places in the church. Um, something was, was probably lost. And indeed, in the 20th century, we see some efforts to restore some of the, almost the playfulness of Catholicism that, that had been eclipsed as a reaction to the Protestant Reformation. Mm. And on that playful note, um, we will come to an end. Father, we thank you so much for your time. This has been the first of a three-part series on medieval Catholicism, scary Catholics, as we're calling it. Father Popperwell, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. And thank you, listeners. Join us next time on our next installment of Conversations with Daniel Noor. You've been listening to an episode of Conversations with Daniel Noor. And for more episodes of Conversations, and for more talks, interviews, and shows, visit cradio.org.au.